Servus. I'm Britta Wedling and this is the Bits and Pretzels podcast. What do you do as an entrepreneur when things suddenly go sideways in your company? How do you react when you are in the middle of a crisis? Should you share the off-the-record background story with reporters? How do you know when a crisis begins and ends or that you are ready for a comeback story? If you are lucky, you can call Margit Van Makers. Margit is an operating partner at the Silicon Valley-based leading VC firm Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most prestigious investment companies in tech that has backed hundreds of startups, including Facebook, Airbnb, Twitter, and Slack. Wyatt named her one of the most talented spin masters in the technology industry. CNN calls her the real queen of Silicon Valley. Margit helped many tech founders to build their brand out of nowhere and gave support in reputation management. And she is convinced that the crisis actually fuels you. And good companies look at a crisis, whether it's their fault or not, like doesn't matter. They look at a crisis as a way, as an opportunity and as a, um, a focal point to make the company better. Margit thinks entrepreneurs cannot start too early to think about building their brand, especially today when trust in technology is eroding faster than ever before. You have a brand, whether you sort of embrace that or not. And so therefore take control of it and take control of your company's brand. And because tech went from some obscure entrepreneurs to a power center, right? People are paying attention. So there's a lot more scrutiny on the entrepreneur and the company. And that is deservedly so because a lot of these companies are quite big and quite powerful. Margit is also a founder herself. She co-founded the Outcast Agency, one of the leading marketing firms in tech, and then sold it for $10 million. In this podcast, we explore how founders could model scenarios and set up a crisis process. And we discuss how crisis management is also a bit like therapy. From the act of asking the necessary probing questions to get at the facts, to dealing with emotions and conflicting agendas. Hey, Margie, thanks for coming on the show. It's always great to see you. Um, Wired Magazine once called you a spin master and one of the most talented ones in Silicon Valley. What does a spin master do in Silicon Valley? It's, I don't love that word. Uh, and I think th the job essentially that I've been doing for the last, what, 30 years now? Jesus, I'm ancient. Um, is really the job of translating, not literally translating language to language, but translating tech and its complexities to a non-technical audience. And, and the spin part of it is that you want to put your best foot forward, right? So you highlight all the positive and that's the spin of it. My own personal philosophy is that actually the unsell is the more effective sell. So if you if you overdo it, if you overhype, you end up just not reaching the audience effectively because people don't trust you. Can you give an example? Um, well, there are plenty of examples. So the, the tricky bit in technology is that if you are an entrepreneur, you want to sell vision. And the vision has to be big enough that you actually attract employees. You know, you make them leave their job at Google, which is quite cushy. And, and take a pay cut and go to a startup. So the vision needs to be quite lofty, but then it needs to be grounded in the reality of where you are today and where you want to go. And I think entrepreneurs sometimes make a mistake where they oversell the vision and where they are, you know, on the, on the path of that vision, right? So that's, that's the problematic piece. Is this been most allowed to lie? No. So reputation is about trust. And when trust goes out the window, 
you, you basically are sinking the brand. So yeah, lying is, uh, is off the table. <laughs> How often does your phone ring these days? Well, mostly it's texting these days or WhatsApping or whatever it is, right? Um, it's funny, people now text rather than call saying like, hey, I'm at the door. You know, there's the doorbell right there and people are still texting. Anyhow, so mostly it's text. Um, and it's a smattering of... Um, either my team calling or the folks in the firm. And oftentimes it's a reporter calling or an entrepreneur going like, hey, we have this big announcement that we want to make. How should I think about it? Or we've just closed the round. Like, what do we do about it? Or something's gone sideways, right? That's usually when the phone actually rings because that stuff's harder to write down. So it's entrepreneurs looking for an answer to how to deal with a crisis. For yeah, example. looking for advice, looking for help on a crisis or looking to... Uh, hire talent, you know, asking to help interview the talent or who do I connect with in terms of a creative agency or PR firm or what have you. How do you decide who to work with and who to not work with in, in a crisis? Is there anybody you would say no to? So look, um, when we make an investment in a portfolio company, that's, you're getting hitched essentially, right? And uh, The way uh, the adage is that you make your money on the easy companies, right? The companies that just take off and they're doing fine and there's not that much help that they need, but you make your reputation on the ones that are going through a tougher struggle, right? So I don't really choose saying like, hey, I won't help you because, you know, the company is not doing well or whatnot. I do, obviously, you know, we have issues when people want to stretch the truth and whatnot. So that, that may be where I bow out, but that usually doesn't happen. When you moved to Silicon Valley in the 90s, the, there was this big idea around Silicon Valley doing good, the well-meaning founder who was like a little eccentric, nerdy, but, you know, basically a good person who wants to build a better future. And what we've seen lately is an eroding of this kind of image that has been based in Silicon Valley for a long time. How do you explain this to yourself and how do you look at this? Well, sorry, Silicon Valley has gone through its own version of climate change as of late, I would say. It's, um, it went from, um, actually, I think the, the, your typical founder is still, still the same typical founder. That hasn't really changed, right? What has changed is it used to be, when I first moved to the US, 91 actually was a recession, right? So people were pretty downtrodden. Then we went, you know, Netscape happened, Netscape went public in 95. That started as very big boom. Remember, there was a bubble, the bubble burst, right? And the founders throughout end up being the same set of founders, right? Most of them are, you know, well-meaning, want to change the world, want to do things differently, you know, want, want to, you know, figure out a radically different way of doing things and getting a job done. Um, the perception has gone from like, oh my gosh, there's another unicorn and how exciting is that to all tech is bad, right? And so neither is true. How do you explain that? So is this kind of, you know, part of this kind of hype that has been around for a long time, which is like naturally turning around right now? Well, look, things go in cycles. This is different, right? I, I remember when the bubble burst and in, it, this is really different. And I think it is a combination of mostly that started with um, the election. Um, I, 
I shouldn't speak for Europe, but in the United States, uh, I think the, the the coastal elites were very upset about the election by and large, right? And, you know, looking to figure out like who's to blame for that. So that's a part of it. And then I think the other part is that, you know, in the United States, there used to be three power centers, right? Like Wall Street deals with all the money. Um, LA, the entertainment industry tells you how to feel about things, right? Washington, D.C. passes all the laws. And then there are these weird people in San Francisco that write code. Well, these weird people that write code are now a very important power center. And they affect all of the other power centers. And like when that kind of shift happens, right, there's some unease, some discomfort. I think Silicon Valley initially did not do an adequate job of explaining itself and sort of being part of the power center community. I think they're doing a much better job now, but the headwinds are just amazing. I mean, if you think about the politics of it, there are very few things that Republicans and Democrats agree on. They do agree that tech is bad these days. So that, that's a huge shift. What does it mean for your investment firm, Andreessen Horowitz, that you see this headwinds in the market? So you you just, um, so one thing that we did uh, a few years ago, which is essentially was continue to work with press, whether the cycles are positive or negative, but also increasingly have our own content operation. And that is something that I would recommend to every entrepreneur, because like how would you would wouldn't possibly want to outsource communicating to your customers, to your employees, to the larger community altogether, right? So the podcast does really well. Everything that you see on the website, you know, it has been touched by my editorial team. And so I think that we can be a counter to that negative storytelling thread. And like, it's a real content operation. It's not an advertising operation. So if you listen to the podcast, you see that. But we, our story choices are just different. It's for builders and participants versus for observers and critics. Where do you think do entrepreneurs have the biggest need for advice in building the brand of a firm? I would say you have a brand, whether you sort of embrace that or not. And so therefore take control of it and take control of your company's brand. And because tech went from some obscure, <clears throat> some obscure entrepreneurs to a power center, right? People are paying attention. So there's a lot more acute scrutiny on the entrepreneur and the company. And that is deservedly so because a lot of these companies are quite big and quite powerful, right? So take control of that. And there's a little handy dandy guidelines, but um, take control of that and just know what you want to stand for, what you want to highlight, what, you, what your path is going to be in the world, and don't leave it up to the outside world to define you as a brand. When you think about the last call or the last text message you had with a founder uh, who was in a crisis, what's like the first thing they have to deal with and they have to, to manage there? So I think the... You, you, <laughs> You ought to start beforehand. So if you're a company that has regulatory issues or that deals with transportation or whatnot, you ought to have a crisis plan before anything happens and you ought to model out scenarios. The bigger thing about that is what is going to be your attitude towards the crisis and towards that, that situation. And good companies look at a crisis, whether it's their fault or not, like doesn't matter. They look at a crisis as a way, as an opportunity and as a, um, a focal point to make the company better. 
right? Like in every company that is a really good company does this. Like if you take Airbnb, right? Like they have that situation with the apartment in San Francisco, they did a, a guarantee for $50,000, right? Like every time there's an issue, they go like, okay, how can I make the company better? There was actually an accident that, that happened. I think somebody ransacked and did drugs in okay. an apartment that was rented by Airbnb. Which this people is, do in San Francisco. This is This happened years ago, right? Okay. And yeah. so they were like, okay, How do we make the company better? How do we digitize trust and safety? What do we do when things go sideways, right? And like, that's how they looked at it. Some companies go like, oh, this is a PR problem. Can you talk to the reporter and make them not write the story? That's not the way to look at a crisis, right? Like the, if there's a crisis and you get the call from the reporter going like, hey, I heard blah, 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 right? Like you need to look back at the company and at the business issue and figure out, like, okay, what can we do? And that ends up helping you with the PR end of it because you can explain to the reporters, here's what happened, here's what we're learning from it, here's what we're doing so that there is a bookend to the story versus I don't agree with you and you're unfair. How many out of 10 founders understand that? Uh, I think that's hard to, uh, I don't know. I haven't run the numbers. I think, um, so when you hit a crisis, that's a very emotional area. Because look, So my former firm, like the Outcast yeah. Agency, that is, I call that my non-human child. I'm like incredibly emotionally wrapped up in that company. I started it, it's my baby, right? So something goes sideways, you tend to be very, very emotional, right? So still, even after you sold it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, yes. Uh, anyhow, that aside, but like, it, it's important to understand how tough that situation is when like, your beautiful baby is all of a sudden being called ugly. And maybe there's a good reason because, you know, you screwed up or something went, went sideways. So it is my job or whoever the crisis firm is that helps is to help navigate that that emotional arc and then get people to go like, okay, what are we going to do and whatnot? Which is why I always recommend to people like have a crisis plan and have a culture in crisis. I'll give you um, an example for how that is important. Say, you know, there's a problem in the code and, you know, that causes major issues, side is down, this and that and the other. If you have uh, the wrong culture around crisis, people will shut down and they won't say anything. So that's when you end up in the situation where people go like, oh, there's the problem. You want a culture around crisis where people go like, can speak up, they're rewarded for speaking up. You're not gonna, you know, figure out like who to fire. You're gonna figure out like how to make the company better, right? That's why that cultural piece and the attitude is so important. How important is it how to deal with the public in this kind of situation? How, how much do you think you have to admit in a way How much do you have to not tell about what's happening in, inside the company? Which, which kind of like about the failure, about, you know, things went sideways, about, you know, mistakes in the code. Right. So how much do I have to admit as a founder and how much can I, you know, dis not disclose to the public? Well, so look, if you if you have a it's, it's hard to talk about this in the abstract, but mm. if you if you have a crisis, say like you have a problem with your code the code isn't working, it will likely lead to the site being down. The site is down for an hour, then it's back up. Like, no big deal, right? If you have a situation where, like, users will be negatively affected in a big way, um, I don't know, the Tylenol crisis, whatever, right? Like, that is when you want to 
tell it, you want to tell it all, and you want to tell it as soon as possible, and you want to then close the issue. The, the way to think about the crisis is like, think about it as a book. <laughs> there's, there's, you want the end chapter, and you want to get to the end chapter where all the questions are being have been answered as quickly as possible. You don't sometimes control that, right? Like Exxon Valdez, big oil spill, like you don't know when the spill is going to get cleaned up, you know, you know, you don't know that. Volkswagen is an excellent example of a uh, way I would have not handled the crisis, right? We all knew how this was going to end, right? Like people were going to have to be rewarded, you would have to pay some penalties and they like fought this and didn't admit it and like that book took a lot longer, right? Like that became a series. Right. <laughs> and it should have been one book. Now we're sitting here at our cheers. German beer bank, and you say cheers. This may be a little hokey, but no, it's wonky. We're, we're going. It's great. With it. It's great. We're going with it. Do you have a drink, Bavarian beer, in sunny California? Uh, actually, so there's this place called Zuppenküche that does have beer, and I usually have a beer. I'm more of a Pilsner kind of person or a Kölsch, just since this is where I grew up, but. Um, so there, that's my beer story. Okay, any other drugs like microdoses of psychedelic drugs that they used to do? No, I'm very boring. I, I basically, I go to work and I come home. I hang out with my kid. And your dog? And my dog, yes. I'm a newly minted dog person. I know that you don't like Bavarian dirndls so much, but is that like... <laughs> Is that like every time you go to Oktoberfest? Did you ever go? So when I got my start in tech, this was in the late 80s. Um, I worked at the German sales office of an American startup. And guess when the Americans showed up? End of September. And guess where they wanted to go? Oktoberfest. So that's my one and only Oktoberfest moment. And how was it? It was great. I mean, like the... I forget what the waitresses are called, but like the way they walk around with these steins, that's like... That's a awesome workout, I would think, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure yeah, I could do that. Yeah, it's really heavy. Yeah, they're heavy. They're gigantic. Right, exactly. So, so you grew up on a hog and mushroom farm uh, in Germany. What, what was like the coincidence that brought you to the top of uh, VC investment in, in uh, the US? If there was one. It, there's no real path. It's, it's all random. I used to temp while I was in school and I temped for this guy Eberhard Witter and he was a sort of a GM of American companies and I temped for him when he was the GM for the German speaking office for McDonnell Douglas Software you know the airplane company they had a software division that made CAD software that allowed you to design tennis shoes and whatnot. And he said, well, when you're done, look me up. And then, then I first went to Spain because I wanted to learn Spanish properly. Um, I taught English and German there, which was a fascinating experience. I came back to Temp, get settled back in Cologne. And there he was again. Um, and he then ran the German sales office of a mini supercomputing company. I mean, this is like, I've seen many architectural... Supercomputer cycles. This was after the mainframe, before the PC. This is like... I'm a, I'm a museum of, <laughs> of technology. Which is not true. <laughs> Anyhow, so um, I worked there. Um, and the um, American founder of, you know, 
there's companies merged. The company didn't make it, but the American founder was really, really sweet. He's like, you should be in my country. And so that's how I got to move out here. And then over time, I settled here. At first, I couldn't find a job, which was a little demoralizing. But then I got into the communications field and got a real job, did that for four and a half years. That was an agency called Blanca Notis. This was at the time when Sun Microsystem was in its A-Day. There were quantum hard drives, not quantum computing. Wow. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And then I started Outcast, did that for 14 years. And now I've been with Edreesen Horowitz for almost 10 years. Wow. Is there, there anything you, know. you miss about Germany? Um, I miss the food. Like, like what? I think no country can fit more calories on a single spoon that is more delicious than Germany. I just love German food, um, love all of it. I make a great potato salad that is, I'm, I'm spreading that in San Francisco. Oh, yeah? I'm kidding. My, my neighbors love it. So there's certain German food. Um, I miss my family. I miss uh, how um, Germans generally think about friendship, which is um, just a high value placed on loyalty and longevity. Um, when I first moved to California in particular, it felt like people were more sort of activity friends, like running buddies, whatnot. Um, so I think those are some great qualities. What I think is tougher in Germany is that I think Germany on the the technology adoption curve is just way behind, just attitudinally. Germany is just in, in general, and of course I'm generalizing, um, a more conservative country as in the conserving tradition and technology just like punches that in the gut right so I think I think that's why Germany sort of from a technology adoption point of view is a harder country which is why I like working in Silicon Valley what's still dreaming about you gosh that's probably a better question for other people um my love of discussion of all things I don't know political, social, whatnot, and, like, that's okay. And in the U.S., uh, it is harder to have, like, real disagreements and discuss them and, and have that be all right and not personal, particularly now that we're in this super polarized world. And, and San Francisco is particularly kind of <clears throat> on one extreme of that axis. Um, your daughter, Lola, is basically sitting here with us today. Hey uh, <laughs> back in the days when she was little, did you take her to the office with you? Uh, not as much as I should have and wanted to just because the commute is so long. And when they're little, they do get bored. And like I am in the office to work, so it's hard to go <clears throat> and have eight meetings and have a five-year-old with you. It would have been much easier schedule-wise because school doesn't really matter. But I actually love... I love taking her on work trips on occasion when it doesn't interfere with school too much because I think you just you just learn so much. I, like back before we had sort of a professional school system, like that's how kids learn, right? They learn by being a, alongside adults. And I think you just pick up lots of stuff that you you don't get exposure to in school. What was the last nasty fight you had with Mark and Ben? Um, nasty... You know, people used to ask me about, like, how do you get along with Mark? And I actually, I don't know, maybe in his past he, he was a lot different, but um, I haven't had any nasty 
fights. Or like fights generally? Sometimes, like, you know, Ben is very much into hip hop. I remember he's very much into hip hop. And so he wanted all of our podcasts to have like this particular hip hop song. I was like, Ben, we're not going to do that. The entire brand is not hip hop. Like, that's very much a Ben thing. So, like, I think the. Uh, Mark says this, I, f- I forget who's quoting, but it's like strong opinions weekly held, right? So there's a lot of argument, uh, discussing and arguing in the firm um, because you want to get to the best answer. So, if, you know, if you, if you if this is not your cup of tea, it's probably a hard place to work. Like it, it's not super harmony driven. So with that comes like you argue and you argue back and forth and, you know. Some, but, it's, but it's not like who wins. It's about like how do we get to the right answer. Mm-hmm. I know that you are an outdoor person. That you, I see pictures of you at, on Baker Beach or of your dog basically mm-hmm. on Baker Beach. And I know that you hike quite mm-hmm. a lot also. Did you ever climb up the summit um, of a mountain? No. Um, so I had almost an opportunity to go do Kilimanjaro with my Kilimanjaro with my childhood friend, but like schedules didn't align. Um, but that is still on my list. I would love to do that. Was there any moment where you thought, oh, I did it? So I think that's a dangerous thing. Like, I think the minute you think like you're done or you've achieved, you basically start to wither, right? So like that, I I don't believe in, like, I don't believe in like working to retiring or any of that. Because I, I just think that The way to stay engaged and 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 let me back up. My belief is like we get one run on this planet, right? So the the ideal job is to make the largest contribution that you can by the time you leave, right? So therefore, I think deciding that you're done or that you've achieved means you should probably go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Did that come out wrong? Yeah, no, that was absolutely fine. <laughs> so, so, so it's actually... She's like, I'm staying out of it. <laughs> so it's actually also, you think a lot about, like, making the world a better place, or...? Well, no, I'm just, I just try to figure out, like, okay, whatever talent I have, I should bring that to the world and, and try to make the fullest contribution I can That it's really more that it's not like I am in a position to make the world a better place. But I think if everybody lives to their fullest potential, then like all seven billion of us will we'll get somewhere. Mm-hmm. What price did you pay privately for your big success, if there was any? Oh, that's a hard question because I do feel like I have um, I've not had enough fun in my life. I'm working on that, but yeah, like. <laughs> Which is probably very German. This, yes, there's a I'm lot of... I'm thinking about this sometimes myself. There's a lot of work, not a lot of play, so... What, But, are, you doing, oh. what are you doing to change that? Well, uh, my daughter decided to start horseback riding, and so then I was faced with this choice of, like, am I going to watch for an hour, or am I going to get on the horse? So I'm now getting, like, I'm a newly minted horsewoman. I really suck, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're doing great. Moving over to our last place. That's going to be a drink that comes with that? Or? Drink, no, it's no drink. It's <laughs> <laughs> no drink. Yeah. We're actually going to visit the creamery in Palo Alto. Which All right. is, I think, a place where you met Ben uh, Horowitz and Mark Andreessen to talk about the company first. So 
What was the situation like in 2009 when you guys first met? I think it was in 2009 when you first met and talked about building I think a it was 2008, together. right? 2008? Yeah. Okay. So good. yes, we, we turned 10 years in 2019, last right. summer. So 2008 in the fall. I So there was a an entrepreneur who wanted to hire Outcast. Um, occasionally, you know, there are companies that think they have a competitive conflict and whatnot, and, and Outcast can't present people who compete, right? Like, how are we going to convince a reporter that like, this company is great? And this one too, and they compete. Anyhow, there was a perceived conflict between those companies. Um, and the conflict was with Facebook saying like, no, we'd rather have you not represent this company. Long story short, this entrepreneur asked Mark to intervene, which I don't think he was going to do because he was a director on Facebook, but he asked for my contact information. At the time, Ben had just left HP and they were doing angel investing. So I thought they wanted to potentially refer outcast business to their portfolio companies. And they <clears throat> grilled me on like, how do you guys work? What clients? Blah, 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 blah. Then I didn't hear from them for a while. Then... They asked me to meet again. And they're like, okay, so we're launching a VC firm. We're going to raise $300 million. I'm like, have you read the news? Because this was this was at the height of the financial crisis, right? And Mark just said, like, let's assume success, shall we? So, And they did raise the money very quickly and um, and became a client. Um, then. And then I think about a year in, that's when I joined Andreessen Horowitz full-time. What was your first thought? I mean, there were like so many VC firms around on Sunny Road. There are still so many... VC firms around. Why did you think there was like a chance for another VC brand in, in Silicon Valley? Yeah. So the the reason um, Ben and Mark wanted to have a top brand is because all the super hot deals, they essentially are, com they're all competitive, right? And it's really only the top firms that get to compete for them, right? So it's important to have a top brand. It was unclear at the time, um, Because that list of the top four or five VC firms, that like it just hadn't changed in decades. Like there was one new entrant, which was Benchmark, and they were existing venture capitalists that, that came out of another firm. They had a track record, right? Like none of which we had. So the reason I thought it was interesting, because one is I didn't know that we could do it or we could do it quickly. And um, against that, I had run Outcast for 14 years and I love it. We've talked about it, but I didn't know how to do that. So I was like, this is going to be an interesting challenge. And then the asset, what we had is we had, you know, Mark is, um, you know, fairly accomplished and attractive to entrepreneurs. And then Ben, who was much more under the radar at the time, but he had done a very, very hard turnaround and a successful exit that was like one of the harder companies to do with um, LoudCloud, which he then sold to HP. And he so, wrote a book about it, Hard Things About Hard Things. Yeah, but that was like down the road. Like that, he he was known among like the tight entrepreneur group, but like nobody else knew him in the broader community. So and the books, the, the book was to help fix that, right? Um, so we had that as an as asset. And what they did very well is they basically said, like, we're going to essentially hone in on what a founder typically knows, which is product, and what they don't know, which is all the other stuff. And particularly, they don't know people, right? They don't know CFOs. They don't know VPs of sales and whatnot. So the entire firm was organized around helping the founder plug into the networks that they didn't have. So I figured like, between the, the two track records, right, and the, the crisp positioning and the fact that the fees went to building out teams and all of that, I thought we had a shot. And then I actually think 
you know, I asked Ben this, I think five years in, it was like, how long did you think it was going to take? And he thought it would take eight to 10 years. But then brand wise, it happened a lot faster, which is great. And I think everybody worked really hard to make that happen. But like in, in VC land, we are still toddlers, right? Because a single fund takes sort of seven to 12 years and we're now just 10 years old and so far so good. But like we're, we're still very young. What can other founders <clears throat> learn about building a brand? What's the most important thing to start with? Well, deciding that you have one and that you ought to take control of it and be deliberate about it and be thoughtful about like what you do and what you won't do and and how the brand connects to everything. It connects to getting employees, getting money, getting business partnerships. You know, it's not a TechCrunch story. That's also great, but like that's not what that is. It is a sort of a holistic long-term thing. It's a little bit like enterprise sales. You don't meet with a customer and expect a purchase order to be signed. There's a lot that goes into it. You see many entrepreneurs, you meet any many, many entrepreneurs and you see what's happening in the technology community. What do you think are the next big technologies shaping the, our next 20 years? Well, um, <clears throat> I knew that exactly, right? Like that's that's always the, always the tricky part. I mean, AI, as we've talked about, is having a huge impact. And AI is one of those, um, it makes everything better, right? Like from the bags that you find on Pinterest to autonomous driving, right? Like some industry can't function without AI, right. but every industry can be made better with AI, right? So that is a huge trend. We are a bit of an outlier in that we have a really, really strong belief in crypto, right? So we raised an entire fund. We changed the way the firm is registered. We're now a registered investment advisor, right? We did that. That was driven primarily so that we could make all kinds of crypto investments. Um, What does it mean specifically? So we're registered with the SEC, which has a bunch of sort of marketing restrictions in particular, right? So you can't we can't talk about performance anymore. We can't cherry pick companies. Like I can't sit here and say like, oh, so-and-so is so great. I would then also have to say like, well, it's only one company in our portfolio and the others might not perform. You know, you sound a little bit like a disclosure statement. Mm. Uh, and you'll see on our podcast and on our written documents, there's lots of disclosures and whatnot. So, uh, but it was worth doing because now we have maximum flexibility in doing all kinds of investments. We could buy public stock if we wanted to. So we have a strong belief in crypto. Um, we are on our second bio fund. So we have a strong belief in bio fund and our, our thinking around bio has actually expanded, not, not stayed narrow. Um, Then I think there is there's a question about like sort of what's next in consumer other than marketplace businesses, which are great. Like companies like Airbnb, right? Like those are classic marketplace businesses. And, and those tend to be if they if they work, they tend to be very big businesses. But we don't know exactly what's next in social or communications. Like, um, could that be that the next social platforms are really gaming platforms with a strong social component? Like, so that's. That area is, is very interesting and like we, have, we haven't figured out what the big hill is to climb there. Coming to our very last part, it's our either or game. Mm. Uh, I give you two words and you have to make a decision for one and explain it very briefly afterwards. Bits or pretzels? Well, my life is bits, obviously, but pretzels because I'm in Bavaria and I had one yesterday and it was delicious. Nerd or extrovert? I am an introvert. But I've become way more extroverted since living in the United States because that just works better there. Risk or safety? Definitely risk. 
you don't get to big change unless you take risks. Stability or change? Same answer, basically. Change. change. So people, change is upsetting, but it leads to better outcomes. Challenge or comfort? Uh, pick areas where you want to be challenged and then pick also your comfort spots because I think we need both. Numbers or ideas? Ideas. Work or fun? Well, we've talked about this. I should have more fun, but I do like working. Lead or follow? Lead, definitely lead. Following means basically you're leaving it up to others as to how the world is going to turn out. So that just seems like a really silly way to put yourself on the defensive. Roots or revenue? You need rules to get the revenue. Tradition or transition? Transition for sure. For sure. Trans trans we are always in transition. I, I sort of feel like this is... People keep thinking that they have an option to choose whether something will develop or not. The world will always change and always develop. And so I think the better option is to lean into it and shape it. Conquer or compromise? Um, I believe in long-term relationships in business and in life. So if you want to always win, you're going to end up very lonely, both in business and in your personal life. So compromise. Margit, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please subscribe. And of course, please tell your friends about us. And do give us a five-star rating. Write to us at podcast at bitsandpretzels.com to let us know how we are doing. Or if you want to suggest a guest to us. I'm Britta Wedling. See you next week.